Go ahead and find your Bible, Luke 16. We might not be there for a little bit, but sooner or later we'll get there. Luke 16. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. Lost track a while back of how many we've done. We've actually got a good uh, backlog of questions that have been answered, and I've even reached the point where I've gotten one or two questions in that I've already done at some point in the past. I don't, maybe you were just not here or whatever, that's fine. But it's really gratifying to be able to say, I already answered that one. Go back, I'll get you a CD or something. But uh, we got one, uh, got one tonight, it's, uh, it's quite a doozy. Question is, what becomes of our souls on the day of death? Which is, I think, a well-phrased way to put it. Um, there's a lot more to this question. Um, to say a, a, another line or two of asking for some clarification, for example, um, there are some texts in the New Testament which describe this intermediate state as sleep, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and yet others seem to describe it as a state of consciousness and not sleep at all. For example, the rich man and Lazarus. We'll get into all that. So what this is is a question about the intermediate state. What happens to the dead between their death and the second coming of Jesus, in which uh, ushers in the final state of, of, uh, of, of, all, of all men? Uh, part of what, what the question is getting at is when you pile up all these passages that seem to talk about the intermediate state, there is at times a, perhaps a seeming contradiction. Paul says at Jesus' second coming, that the dead who sleep are raised in 1 Thessalonians 4. Other passages, story of the rich man of Lazarus, Paul saying, I'm going to go be with the Lord in Philippians 1, um, seem to speak of our continued consciousness. So what do we make of this? Um, it is a sort of question I know lots of people have. Um, we wonder about it for ourselves. We wonder about it for our loved ones who die. Where are they now? What becomes of the dead? Um, so what, what I'll do pretty simply is walk through what the Bible says, First, we'll talk about what the Bible doesn't say about the intermediate state. We believe that at the second coming, all the dead will be raised and all will be judged and all will spend eternity either with God or very far away from God. But the question is, what happens in between our death and that final day and that final state? So I want to begin with uh, a few views of this that I think we can reject. And just uh, a side note. I feel the way about this subject that I feel about several other tough subjects uh, with relation to God, things like that. The Trinity is one. And that is it's a lot easier to poke holes in wrong views than it is to say everything we want to know about the correct view. I feel that way about this. But there, there are a few common answers people give about what happens in the intermediate state that I do think we can and should reject. So I want to begin with some of those, some of those common ones. So the first one would be the view of purgatory. So in Catholic tradition, there are people who are transported directly to heaven, a very select few. Those are called saints. And what they mean by saint is not what we mean, all the redeemed. They mean a very select few, holy, who need no purification, who are already basically perfect now. Um, but for the rest of us, lesser souls, they say, must first experience the cleansing of purgatory before they can enter the blessed state. I'll read to you from the Catholic Catechism. It says, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. 
The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So, maybe a a note to just nail down what we mean here. Purgatory in Catholic uh, teaching is neither heaven nor hell. It's neither of those. It's a place for those bound bound for heaven. All in purgatory, as I understand it, all in purgatory are bound for heaven eventually, but they go there first in order to be purged, which is the root word of purgatory, purged. Purged of whatever unholiness still exists before they'll be fit to go into God's presence in heaven. Along with this belief in purgatory come practices of, to quote again, almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance on behalf of the dead. In other words, if the, along with this belief in purgatory come a number of practices where those who are still living on this earth can help lessen the time of, uh, of their loved one's stay in purgatory. This is one of uh, Martin Luther's biggest qualms in the Reformation, the abuse of indulgences, which was people's belief that they could pay money and uh, so that their uh, loved one's time in purgatory could be lessened. Well, the primary justification for, for this belief comes from the book of Second Maccabees, which is in what we commonly call the Apocrypha, a set of books not in our Bible, but the Catholic Church does include these books in their canon. And there's a story in Second Maccabees chapter 12 where Judas Maccabeus takes up a collection as an offering that he says will benefit the dead. It says he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. And they say, there it is, purgatory. Um, won't spend a lot of time on this. This is easy enough to debunk, though. Um, the reason appeal must be made to the apocrypha for this practice and not to, uh, to the Bible as we have it here um, is because there's really no precedent, no hint of it in the Old or New Testament, really. Um, there, there is no clue in the Bible that the intermediate state is a place of cleansing or that the amount of cleansing undergone could be lessened by the performance of good deeds of the living, nothing like that. Um, we also have good reason not to include the Apocrypha in our, in our Bibles, in the canon, um, first and foremost because the Jews themselves, who, have, who had great respect for these books in the first century, um, chose not to include them in the Old Testament. That the Jews themselves, who these are Jewish texts, the Jews themselves said that these are not a part of Scripture. They were widely known, they were written and widely known in the first century, but they were not a part of the collection of books that people like Jesus and Paul would have called Scripture. If you ask Jesus or Paul what Scripture, they would not have said this. And so we're on safe ground saying that's not, that's not Scripture. So again, I don't, I don't think we need to spend much time debunking this thing that I doubt anyone here believes, but I do think it's worth bringing up um, because a huge number of people will say this is what the intermediate state is. It's purgatory. Um, uh, any, any Catholic who believes their own church's teaching will say this, this is the answer. Here's what becomes of the dead, purgatory. So that's the first thing, first uh, belief I think we can dispatch with. The second, let me clarify as I put it up. The second view I think we can reject is the simple immortality of the soul. So I don't mean, I don't mean we should reject the idea of the immortality of the soul. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we should reject the idea that the immortality of the soul is the end of the story after death. That we should reject. The, the, the idea that when we die, our soul simply leaves the body, goes somewhere into story. That is not the end of the story, according to the Bible. Uh, I think a, a, 
we could trace this real this belief. The first place we see it in history is in the work of Plato, the uh, the philosopher Plato. <clears throat> he writes a book on on the soul, and, and in it he writes a story about Socrates, who, when facing his own execution, Socrates talked about the immortality of the soul and the afterlife. He said, "Is a blessed return of the soul to the immaterial world of ideas from which it came." According to Plato. Um, humanity is made up of two things, body and soul, and those two things are at odds with each other. And for Plato, the soul was imprisoned inside the body, and death meant a blessed freeing of the soul from its bodily prison. That was Plato's belief. Um, and I think this is basically what a lot of Christians believe. I think it's probably what I grew up thinking, um, which is the immortality of the soul, not the resurrection of the body, is the important thing. Um, that, that's literally what I remember someone told my grandmother at my, uh, at my grandfather's funeral. Um, they came up to her and said, his soul is with God and that's all that matters. Um, I think that has more in common with Plato than it does with Christianity. Um, it was a philosophical attachment to these sorts of ideas that led the Athenians to reject Paul's teaching of the resurrection in Acts 17. He's going along talking about Jesus and they're very interested, but the second he brings up the resurrection of the body... This they find laughable because they have a platonic view of the person, which is the body is an obstacle to the, uh, to the eternal soul, and the soul needs to escape the body, be liberated from the body, not to be attached to it for all eternity. This is probably also behind what the Corinthians um, said, who, those who said there was no resurrection from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which is this platonic idea. We need to be rid of the body, not attached to it for all eternity in some resurrection. It's clear within the New Testament the ultimate Christian hope is not attained through death but through resurrection. The Christian hope is not to die. Actually, death is the enemy. The Christian hope is to be resurrected. What victory looks like for the Christian is not ghostly disembodied bliss on the clouds. The Christian hope is not the intermediate state, which we'll get to soon enough. The Christian hope is not what we experience at death It's what we experience in the resurrection. That's what we hope for. Immortality of the soul as the final hope, I think, makes a mockery of some of the greatest chapters of hope in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Romans 8, all about the great hope of the resurrection of our bodies. We need to say resurrection is not a, a metaphor for the immortality of the soul either. What did it mean when Jesus was resurrected? What did it mean? It meant... The tomb really was empty. And it wasn't just a metaphor for his soul still being alive somewhere. Jesus' resurrection did not simply mean the immortality of the soul, and that's not what our resurrection means either. Romans 6 and verse 5, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You want to know what resurrection looks like? Look at Jesus. He, his, is a forerunner of all other resurrections of the righteous. And the earliest Christians knew the difference between Platonism and Christianity. There's a dialogue between Justin Martyr, an early Christian, and to his friend Trypho. And Justin Martyr lamented this, strong words. He said, If you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their soul when they die are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. 
I might not say it that strongly, but he's right in a sense that at the core of Christianity is not simply the immortality of the soul. At the core of Christianity is the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of ourselves. Now, our soul may depart to be with the Lord when we die. More on that in a moment. But there is an inter- there, there is an, that's an interim arrangement. That's not meant to be the permanent state. If I can just say this as forcefully as I can, the Christian hope is not that we die. The Christian hope is that God will raise us from the dead. The very opposite of dying. Death is the enemy in the New Testament. Death will be defeated in the last day when all the dead in Christ will rise, Paul tells us. Which brings us to a third common view to reject. And this one really gets at something the question was was wondering about. And that is the belief of something called soul sleep. Um, This is the belief that the soul is unconscious between death and death and the resurrection, that the soul simply remains unconscious. It doesn't really go anywhere, and it's not experiencing anything. It's just simply just simply unconscious. Um, this has popped up a number of times in history. Um, I read Martin Luther believed a version of this. Um, today, the biggest proponents of soul sleep um, would be Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses would both, uh, would both assent to a version of this. Uh, this view rests on a couple of arguments. Someone who believes in this will say a couple of things. They'll say... Number one, that human existence is a unity of body and soul. And so if the body ceases to function, so must the soul. You need both in order to have life or consciousness. And they say the soul will only regain consciousness after the resurrection when body and soul are again made one. And they would also say, argue that in Scripture the word sleep is the word used for death very often, which implies a cessation of consciousness. After death, we sleep, and so there's nothing happening, we're just asleep. Uh, one example would be a verse uh, from Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be an uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, talking about those who are dead, that you may not grieve as those who, who have no hope. And he goes on to talk about the waking of the sleepers. So a few things to say about that. I, we can grant, I think, that full life, Life as God intended originally in Eden and life as he intends it in eternity is unity of body and soul. We can't affirm that. That is what the New Testament teaches, not just soul by itself. But nothing about that necessitates the belief that the soul cannot survive or the soul cannot be conscious independently of the body. It doesn't follow that just because full full life, according to God, that he wants to give us his body and soul doesn't mean that soul couldn't possibly be conscious apart from body. And then there's just ample biblical evidence that the dead are conscious in some way, even joyous in their post-mortem disembodied state. To name one, in Philippians 1 and verse 23, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Speaking of his death, and he thinks, thinks of it as being in the presence of Christ. So what I think passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.13 say, when the dead are called sleepers. Um, passages like that um, do not refer to soul sleep. There's just too much evidence stacked against it. First um, Thessalonians 4 is not a passage about the intermediate state. We'll get to those passages. It's not a passage about the intermediate state to tell us about it. It's a passage about the resurrection and the final state. That's what First Thessalonians 4 is about. What's asleep and what needs to be awakened at the second coming are the bodies of the dead. The bodies of the dead, I think, are the things that are spoken of as asleep. The body sleeps in death 
and awakes at the resurrection when soul, when, when life is breathed back into it by God. So those are a few views that I think very commonly held that we can and should reject. Now, let's think about how we can build a biblical view of the intermediate state. Let's begin with just thinking about the words used in the, in the Bible to describe this. Two main words used to describe the place of the dead are Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament. Um, sometimes uh, there, there is sort of a slippage in translations. Um, there are some, some places and some translations which will translate the, the Greek word Hades as hell. Uh, Matthew 16 and verse 18 is an example. The gates of hell, he tells Peter, shall not prevail against it, against the church. Um, my version has hell and puts Hades in a footnote, which is, I think, flat wrong. The word is Hades. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Um, in the Bible, these words, Sheol and Hades, simply refer to the abode of the dead, not necessarily some final place of torment for the wicked. They refer, it seems, um, almost always as the abode of the dead. In the Old Testament, Sheol is a place of darkness and mystery. It seems with perhaps a fading existence, there's a hint, that Sheol was never meant to be permanent. Job 7 and verse 9 is an example As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Sheol in the Old Testament is really a a place cloaked in mystery. It's a place where simply the dead go and they abide. There are some texts later in the the Old Testament which speak of uh, awaiting resurrection for those in Sheol. But it just generally refers to the fact that the dead go somewhere that's not here. And that place in the Old Testament is Sheol. Well, in the, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. In uh, the Septuagint, the translation of those Hebrew words into Greek words, that Hebrew word Sheol gets translated by the word Hades, the Greek word Hades, to refer to the same place. And then in the New Testament, the authors use Hades to describe what seems to me to be the same place, to carry with it the same idea. For example, Jesus says in Revelation 1 and verse 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. And so Jesus, the resurrected one, has the authority and the ability to free people from death, and along with that, the place where the dead Abide, Hades, he says. We also know we have a pretty good picture of what most Orthodox Jews in the first century believed about all of this. And we can say, say this pretty confidently. Um, Orthodox Jews in the first century, the Sadducees are sort of the exception that proved the rule. They don't believe in the resurrection, but everyone agreed they were wrong about that, everyone who is Orthodox. But Orthodox Jews in the first century believed that Sheol slash Hades was a place where all the dead went, They also seem to believe there was a distinction made in Hades between the righteous and the wicked. That it wasn't just one big putt, but there was a distinction within Hades between the righteous and the wicked. And that on the day of judgment, God would raise all the dead from Hades. Hades would then be made obsolete. There would be no reason for Hades anymore once everyone was consigned to their final state. And I think that Jewish belief maps on pretty closely with what I see in the New Testament. So now what we're going to do the rest of our time is just look at the passages that I think may have something to say 
um, about, this, about this state or about this place. The first is Luke 16 and verse 19. <clears throat> Luke 16 and verse 19. We'll just read it. 16, 19. There was a rich man. Jesus is telling a story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in a like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, uh, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that uh, those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross uh, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I'll admit, I, I always have difficulty knowing what to do with this story. Um, is Jesus really describing the literal post-mortem destinations of people after death? Or is he merely channeling the common Jewish belief without necessarily comment on the truth or falsity of it um, to make a different point? I do think we have to admit his main focus here is not to give us a blow-by-blow of the afterlife. Um, The main point is not that. The main point he's making is to change the way we use our riches and evaluate people in this life. This story is really designed to reinforce the point he's been making in verses 14 through 18 about the terrible dangers of the love of money. And this is a story about the great reversal coming between those who have much and those who have little. That's the main point. We need to say that regardless of what we say it is or isn't saying about the afterlife. Jesus' main point is that. Now, that said, I do see some correspondence to what we just described of Sheol and Hades. And the word Hades is used here. Um, seems to describe the interim state, um, not the final state, because the rich man who's calling out um, is calling out for his brothers who are still living on the earth um, to repent before it's too late. So it does seem to be describing the intermediate state. There is also here the Jewish concept of a distinction between the righteous and wicked made within Hades. Um, So again, I, I don't think Jesus means to construct a whole intricate picture of the intermediate state. At the very least, that's not his primary purpose. He's telling a story to emphasize the dangers of wealth. But those, there are some who say, well, even if he's just using an illustration, it makes sense that that illustration would have a basis in reality. When he tells the parable of the sower, he doesn't talk nonsense about farming. He doesn't talk about how you plant watermelon and up comes corn. He speaks about genuine things that happen in farming, and so it might be here. To which I say, good point. So that's the first uh, sort of data point we have. The next is Luke 23 and verse 42. Luke 23 and verse 42. Jesus here is, uh, is on the cross interacting with the criminals 
crucified on either side of him. And we see this in Luke 23 at verse 42. And he said, one of the criminals said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Jesus says to the one who has faith, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's a new word we haven't discussed yet. Uh, It's a tough word, I think, because it's used in a lot of different ways um, by the Jews. So uh, I'm told that the word paradise here comes from uh, Persian. Uh, It's a Persian loan word uh, that describes a walled garden. A garden with walls around it is what the word paradise meant originally. It seems in the New Testament, in the handful of times it's used, a couple of times it seems to describe the dwelling place of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 14, when Paul talks about going going up uh, into the heavenly realm, Revelation 2 and verse 7 uses it in what seems to be uh, a way that describes where God dwells. Uh, In the Septuagint, in that translation of the Hebrew into Greek, the word paradise is used to describe the Garden of Eden, and it's used to describe the renewed Jerusalem of Ezekiel 36. In other first century Jewish writings, it's also used to describe the present abode of the departed patriarchs, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all, all the rest, where they are, now, those who are, who are righteously dead, it's used to describe the sort of part of Hades where the righteous are kept in first century Jewish writings. So where was Jesus promising the thief on the cross that he'd be today and with Jesus? I think he'd be describing him as being in a similar place as Lazarus, as in the abode of the dead, Sheol slash Hades, but within which there seems to be a blissful location for the righteous. And this is, this, to not to get too far off track, but that when we wonder about where Jesus went in between his, his death and his resurrection, this might map onto what most people believe uh, where he went into the Hadean realm himself. So this is Philippians 1, next passage, Philippians 1. <coughs> Again, I, what I do here is I just kind of show you my work. Uh, I just kind of stack up the passages that deal with it. We get to the end and we try to hopefully tie something coherent together. This is Philippians 1 and verse 21. Philippians 1 and verse 21. Paul writes this, Philippians 1, 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so Paul is entertaining the possibilities of living or dying here. The plus of living, he says, is a continuation of his work, which which he would be thrilled to continue. But the plus of dying, he says, verse 23, is to depart And be with Christ, for that, he says, is far better. It doesn't tell us much, uh, not where it takes place or in what form he exists there, just basically that he knew dying meant relief, and it meant being in the presence of Christ in some sense. So whatever else we we do or don't know about this mysterious place or this mysterious state, uh, we can at least say this from this passage, it need not be a scary place for the disciple of Christ. 
If we take Paul seriously, we need not be afraid of those in Christ who died and what their state is now. One more passage before we try to tie some things together. Revelation 6 and verse 9. Revelation 6 and verse 9. The story of of the vision of Revelation is really driving driving to the end point at the end of the book, which describes something like the final state of God's people in Revelation 22. Still, along the way, John perhaps makes a reference to a possible intermediate state for believers between their death and between this final day, this resurrection. This is Revelation 6 and verse 9. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves have been. So the martyrs here cry out for vindication and look forward to the judgment and the wrath that will still fall on those who had mistreated and murdered them. Um, I think we can say it's a picture of the intermediate state. They are dead, uh, but there are still people suffering on the earth, bearing witness for Jesus. If you continue reading in chapter 7, these same ones are worshiping before the throne of God and receiving comfort. Now I struggle struggle, uh, over whether to include this in our passages or not, Uh, I I might want to put it in the same category as the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, An apocalyptic story to take note of, but perhaps I wouldn't want to build an entire system off of this alone, only insofar as it coheres to what we know in other places. We can at least say, say this about John's vision of martyrs, they exist in the intermediate state after death and before judgment, and it's also clear that while there... It is a place that is at once blissful and yet not entirely satisfying. And so they are there receiving comfort before God and yet at the same time are crying out for God to do everything he said he would do. For God's justice to fully, to fully impose itself on all the earth. For God to do all the things that God will do. Well, let's go back to our original question. Let's try to answer it as uh, neatly as we can. What becomes of our souls on the day of death? The first thing we need to admit is that we don't know nearly as much about this as we'd like to. Can you agree with that? Not every one of your questions has been answered, nor will it be. Um, The mentions of the intermediate state are few and vague. And I think perhaps part of that is intentional on the part of God, to have few and vague mentions of the intermediate state, because... As we said in the beginning, the emphasis of the New Testament is really not on the intermediate state, but on the final state. The real hope of the Christian is not what happens to us when we die. It's what happens when Jesus returns. That's the hope of the Christian. The real Christian hope is not death. The real Christian hope is resurrection. But to try to answer the question, let me say a few things that, that we, can perhaps, we can perhaps hang our hat on. I believe there exists a place called Sheol or Hades. Within that place, there may be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There even seems to be a fellowship between God and his people after their death and before the resurrection, though this fellowship is not 
as complete, and it's certainly not embodied as it one day will be. It is not, it is not a fellowship in the perfection uh, that it will be in the final state. I think there's a few comforting lessons uh, we can draw from this sparse data. Uh, death does not eradicate the believer's union with Christ. That's one thing we can say. When Paul dies, he intends to be with Christ in Philippians 1, which he says is better than his current bodily existence. And that we can take comfort in for ourselves. And yet, at the same time, the same Paul who thinks of the, of the uh, immediate post-mortem state as something uh, comforting also thinks of it as something temporary. That for Paul, the intermediate state is something like, a, like the car you drive on loan from the mechanic while yours is being fixed. That is, it's nice to have and get around, but we're still waiting for the original to be renewed. That's the hope. seems to be an awkward time of disunity between body and soul, which will finally and most gloriously give way to full, unified, embodied life, soul and body, for all eternity. That is the ultimate Christian hope. Uh, I don't know, as I uh, thought about this, this uh, answer, I don't know if I gave the question more than they bargained for or if I shortchanged them. And I might have I done both. Um, what it is, though, is, is my best shot. I, I do think the subject of the intermediate state is important. Um, it's something we all wrestle with when it comes to our own mortality. And it's also something we need to know something about in order to counsel the, the dying and the bereaved. As death approaches us or our loved ones, we all want to know what becomes of the dead. Where do they go? What are they doing? And I do think we've got to have something more to say than, than trite, silly cliches. And we definitely have to have more to say than downright falsehoods that many people say in efforts to comfort. Things like, well, God just needed another angel in heaven. The Bible has something to say about these questions. And uh, all, all our reassurances to ourselves and others, if they're going to be of any value, I think need to be as biblical and as true as they could possibly be. That's what we comfort one another with, with the truth of God's word. So hopefully I've equipped you with something, something close to that. So maybe there's someone here this evening that as we thought about these issues of death, of judgment, where we go, what's happening to us, realizes uh, your own state with God, your own standing with God is not what it should be. And that any question of what comes next is one that scares you because you're not sure of your standing with him. If that's the case with you, I would encourage you, don't leave this place without addressing it. We're here to help you in whatever way we can to point you to the truth found in God's word. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing.
Glory to His name.